During the decade of the 1980s, I was primarily interested in the political situation, especially U.S.-Soviet relations and the whole prospect of a nuclear war. So I was watching the arms race and nuclear weapons a lot. I was the director of a nonprofit organization here in Santa Barbara, California. And uh, at, the at the end of the decade, we saw everything change very quickly. We saw the Soviet Union disintegrate peacefully and the arms race kind of wind down. But at the same time, the United States government was still building a lot of very, very strange weapons. And I was basically doing background research on why that was. Who's the, who's the target? What's the, what's the new strategy? What's the new objective of these very unusual weapons programs? And a person said to me in the summer of 1989 that I would never understand U.S. military policy unless I looked into UFOs. And that was the very first time in my life, I was 40 years old at the time, that was the first time I ever heard anyone say the word UFO to me in a serious context. And because this was a response to a very serious inquiry of mine, I decided I was obliged to follow this lead. This person was, you know, I regarded him as credible and, and reliable. So I thought, well, what the heck, I better look into this. Because it was, uh, I was completely unaware at the time that there could be anything like UFO secrecy, government secrecy. So during the summer of 1989, I did a very quick study on UFOs. And the thing that was most easy to see was that there is indeed secrecy about UFOs. No question about it. My interest was peaked right then because I knew a lot about government secrecy. When you study the arms race for 10 years, as I had, you see government secrecy everywhere. That's the whole point of the arms race, is keep everything secret. But the UFO secret was so well kept and so well done, uh, surrounded as it was by a tremendous amount of nonsense, which was part of the secrecy game, really, that uh, I had been unaware of it, and I was shocked by that. So two things impressed me. Number one, there are secrets here. The stamp of secrecy is all over this once you look at it through the right glasses, as it were. And secondly, it must be so important that they went to enormous trouble to keep a lot of smart people unaware of it. So what's the secret? And I've been trying to understand that question for the ever since what's the secret what do they know or think they know or perhaps think they don't know that is so important that they went to all this trouble what are UFOs and why are they important and over the last eight years more than eight years I have spent almost full time on those subjects uh, with only minor digressions into other work over the last eight years. I have, and in the last four years, I've done absolutely nothing but UFO research and publishing. That question, what are UFOs, why are they important, remains very mysterious to me and to other credible researchers I know. We have ideas. We have theories. But what I think 
one of the biggest problems is is that UFOs are genuinely baffling to the smartest people who've ever looked at them. To the people with all the money, all the clout, all the instrumentation, all the airplanes, all the radar, all the special stuff to analyze, these events, these phenomena, are deeply mystifying, and that alone is very troubling. Give an example. In the summer of 1996, I spent uh, a fair amount of time with a man who works for the British Ministry of Defense. His name is Nick Pope. He worked for four years as an information officer in the Air Secretariat. His job was to follow up UFO reports that came in from all kinds of people in Great Britain, including scientists and civilians and people at the, uh, you know, at the airports and so forth. He went into that job a complete skeptic, thinking it was probably all a bunch of baloney. He left the job four years later, convinced that Great Britain was routinely, their airspace was routinely violated by aircraft from another planet. So in four years, a man in the Ministry of Defense in Great Britain went from where to where. And he wrote a book in 1996 called Open Skies, Closed Minds, in which he basically says, this is what I think. Now, how did he arrive at that conclusion? Because he saw the best UFO reports in England over and over again, some of which were coming from top secret military installations. People who, whose job was to monitor the sky, not just you know for civilian aircraft, but for anything that could threaten British security. And these people told him stories that to him were so profoundly impressive that he was forced to the conclusion that these things were real. But he could only speculate that these things were from elsewhere, were someone else's aircraft, i.e. alien, ET, whatever, because no one else could tell him what they were. No one else could say, oh, don't worry, that's the new American superplane, or that's the new British superplane, or that's from, you know, Russia. No, no one knew. And certainly no one could say with a straight face, and he knew this, oh, don't worry, it's swamp gas, it's the planet Venus, it's a meteor shower, uh, it's, you know, all the other silly things that people sometimes call UFOs. So this is an example. I've run into this a lot. I've talked to a lot of experts. I've talked to a lot of people who are in need-to-know positions, who have no personal stake, no metaphysical religious belief system about UFOs. It's their job to keep their feet firmly on the ground and figure out what the heck is going on. And they know, better than most civilians, that UFOs are profoundly, first of all, profoundly there really there and secondly profoundly mysterious and they have all the all the indicators of someone else's technology and of course that flies in the face of all the expectations that we've been told to expect all the things that we think are real no people can't fly here from somewhere else no that doesn't happen but you know scratch a good air force man you might find someone who believes in UFOs.
One of the big problems in assessing a UFO report is the fact that human technology is very, very advanced. And some kinds of human aircraft are extremely secret and officially do not exist. And we have examples of that historically over and over again, where a new weapon system, a new aircraft was brought out, was put into service, and was flatly denied for years while it was in service. And then later on, we find out about it. Way back in the early 1960s, the CIA was given an incredibly hot new aircraft, which even the Air Force didn't have. That aircraft was later called the SR-71 Blackbird. That aircraft later became the world's most famous high-altitude, super-fast reconnaissance plane. In 1962, though, that plane was capable of things that no one would have believed. 30 years later, it still looks like an incredible airplane. How much better are we now at making airplanes? Very, very much better than that. What can we do? Well, there are only rumors what we can do. Some of those rumors include the possibility that we can fly eight or nine times the speed of sound. Some of those rumors say that we have planes that can actually go suborbital and come back down again. Some of those planes may have very, very exotic propulsion systems. Some of those planes may be super stealthy and super fast. So far, that combination doesn't officially exist. But perhaps even more weird, it's possible, just possible, that we have, at least in a, an experimental stage, we have some kind of anti-gravity type of propulsion. There have been rumors to that effect for a number of years. And some of the people who've, let's say, winked and nodded at those rumors are very, very highly placed people in the aerospace industry. But no one has been able to find real evidence that we can do that. Now, if we could do that, if I could certify to you that we have anti-gravity propulsion of any kind at all, then we could explain virtually any behavior that is attributed to UFOs. And we could say, and some people do say, don't worry, it ain't aliens because we've got this propulsion and that explains everything. Well, I don't think it's quite that simple because, frankly, there are no serious indicators that we do have it. And uh, on the other hand, UFOs, the way UFOs behave, more or less requires it. So there's a gap there that, uh, as far as I know, trying to be as rational and conservative about this as, as, as the subject requires, I don't believe we've crossed that gap, but I do know human aircraft are capable of remarkable things and that sometimes when a person sees a UFO that is doing something completely astonishing, they are seeing a human aircraft. NASA has always said that they have no, essentially no comment on UFOs. They have always said that the space program has never encountered a UFO or an alien. They've always said that the, the astronauts who went to the moon, for example, uh, never saw anything. Some astronauts have said, not so fast. We saw some stuff we couldn't explain. 
A few astronauts have been very vocal in recent times, notably Gordon Cooper, who has said for years that he had his own UFO experiences in the early 50s, and uh, also says that, uh, that he's convinced that UFOs are extraterrestrial spacecraft. He has said that on the record over and over again. More recently, um, Edgar Mitchell, the first man who walked on the moon, or no, he wasn't the first. He's one of the men who, who actually walked on the moon. Edgar Mitchell has said uh, that although he personally has never seen a UFO, he is convinced that others have seen UFOs and that there are indeed aliens about. So he is uh, quite an influential person in the space program. However, the official NASA policy is that there is no alien presence here. On the other hand, NASA has done an extraordinary about-face in the last few years on the topic of life out there. Since the early 1960s, a small handful of astronomers have believed that they would be able to find evidence of an intelligent life in the far galaxy using uh, radio astronomy, radio telescopes. And that program was an on-again, off-again program at NASA over the years. Congress was never very fond of it, and they always had a funding problem, and actually most scientists for a very long time thought that program was really kind of silly. The so-called SETI program, the program uh, to find life on radio telescopes, uh, has had a small but very vocal chorus of supporters over the years, uh, notably Carl Sagan, of course, who just passed away, and a few others such as Philip Morrison at MIT and, and the astronomer Frank Drake, who actually more or less invented the SETI program back in the early 60s. Um, that program has lately gotten a very major new lease on life because NASA has decided that finding life in outer space is a really good idea. And they have realized that, uh, for, two, for two main reasons, they have realized that this could be their path to virtually endless funding into the future, which of course is always a big deal for NASA. And the two things that have happened recently that make that possible, first of all, a kind of holy grail, if you will, uh, of planets around other stars something that has been speculated or theorized for years but never really proven until very very recently it wasn't until the fall of 1995 that the first really solid data came in that indicated virtually the certainty of a planet around another star and then they found another one and then they found another one and suddenly they were finding them almost every star they aimed at that was anything like what we consider to be a uh, a, a hospitable star. We know that some stars are very unlikely to have planets, but as a matter of fact, even a few of the rather unlikely subjects may have unusual planets around them. The point being, planets are probably very, very common. This is good news for people who want to find life. So that was the big, n number one big step. Number two big step, of course, the tremendous controversy about life on Mars. August of 1996, they made this, this fabulous announcement of, uh, of this uh, meteorite. It raised a lot of eyebrows because the fact was the evidence was very iffy. 
And everyone knew that right at the top. They, they knew, okay, this is a big maybe. The interesting thing about NASA's posture on it right from the get-go was, we say this is life, you prove us wrong. This is a very interesting posture because NASA has only lately gotten into the life out there game. What they realized, though, that this was incredibly sexy, that this was something that the public could get seriously excited about. And that was the path to funding. So in effect, they took some very iffy science and made what amounted to a very large political maneuver around it, okay? basically saying, OK, we know that the evidence isn't all in yet, but wouldn't it be great if this were real? Shouldn't we pretend it might be so that we can go forward on a fast track and find out more? And people went, yeah, great idea. Congress was thrilled. President Clinton was thrilled. And so now we have a very aggressive new policy for exploring Mars. Now, I happen to be very, very in favor of all this. I also happen to think that NASA is being a little bit opportunistic. But in the end, that's OK if they get results. The bottom line is, if there is any kind of life on Mars, or ever was any kind of life on Mars, even the scrawniest, stupidest bacteria, it would be a huge, huge vote in favor of the idea that life is common in the universe. If it could happen twice in one solar system, then we would basically have a very strong clue that it will happen virtually any chance it gets. And that would mean probably there's enormous amounts of life out there. Part of the question about what the Mars meteorite really means is to do some very, very detailed science to determine whether or not life on Mars could have been a contaminant from Earth or vice versa. In other words, it is possible that life only occurred once in this solar system, but due to some celestial event, it was bounced from one planet to another. There's no question that that could have happened. We have very clear evidence that the meteorite itself was bounced from Mars to Earth. Could a meteorite be bounced from Earth to Mars? It's a little less likely, but not impossible. There's clear evidence that meteorites have been bounced from Mars to Earth probably over and over again. It's not even a terribly uncommon thing. OK. Now, there's another theory called the panspermia theory, which is an interesting theory that has been embraced by uh, some unlikely candidates, including Francis Crick, the scientist who co-discovered the DNA molecule. He wrote a book very recently uh, in which he basically said he believes the panspermia theory, and that is that life just floats through space and lands wherever it lands, and sometimes it lands on a good planet. That life in the form of extremely primitive, spore-like, uh, you know, stuff that could probably survive in outer space for millions of years, if need be, that kind of stuff floats around, 
getting bounced from one planet, from one meteor, from one comet to another, and winds up somewhere on a planet like ours, our planet being nicely situated for life, and boom, takes charge and starts to grow. This is a wonderful theory. We have no proof it's true, but if it is true, there would be two possible outcomes for that. Number one, it's possible that we would see life in a lot of different places. Number two, it's possible that in some important ways that life would look alike, that life, that life would look the same over and over again. Now, that idea is very unpopular with most biologists because they say, look what DNA can produce on this planet. DNA can produce a slug, it can produce a cow, it can produce a monkey, it can produce a parrot, it can produce a whale, it can produce a, a fungus. And in fact, it produces so many different life forms in such profusion, such a wide variety, why should we expect that if you go to a different planet, you'll see anything you can even recognize? Why should we expect that? Well, good question. But it is interesting that the, DNA, that the DNA on this planet has differentiated into a relatively small variety of kingdoms of life. We've got the plants, we've got the animals, and we've got some stuff called archaea, another family that's only lately been talked about. But that's very primitive and kind of slime. But among the animals, for example, it has been pointed out that the most popular animal form by far, no matter what you look at, look at a, you know, look at a, a, at a lizard, look at a whale, look at a monkey, look at a person, it's a tube with legs. Most popular animal form. By far, 98% of all species, probably more than that, it's a tube with legs. Well, does that mean that DNA, no matter how much variety you throw in, the DNA basically produces tubes with legs? It's an interesting idea. Does that mean that if we went to another planet, we'd see a lot of tubes with legs? Would we see creatures that look like ours? Well, maybe we would. Would we see people? That's another real big question. Would we see anything that looks remotely like a person? When we get into the question of aliens, the biggest problem biologists have with the claim that there are aliens is that they look like people. They say, it's impossible, no chance, biologically impossible. But is it? We don't know. Um, that, the panspermia theory opens itself up to the possibility of that interpretation. So the question, life on other planets? Obviously, too soon to tell. The people in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the SETI people with the radio telescopes, they think sooner or later we'll hear a signal, a radio signal, which would prove it for, for sure. That'd be the end of the story. Yes, someone out there has a radio, great. They must be intelligent, they must be like us, that's it. If our government or any government knows anything about UFOs, the question is, can they tell us? And if they can't tell us, 
what is stopping them from telling us? What's so important or dangerous or scary that they can't tell us? And how do we bridge that gap? One theory is the government doesn't know anything about UFOs because they figured out a long time ago that UFOs are nothing but swamp gas and the planet Venus and misidentified aircraft. And when you get to the very, very bottom of the story, there aren't any UFOs. That's one theory. I happen to think that theory is wrong. But of course, some people think it's true. But let's say it's not true. Let's say that's a wrong theory. The government knows something. The government has watched them on radar. The government has picked up crash debris, according to some theories, so forth and so forth. Why can't they tell us? What will it take? Do they think that they have found out that we're being invaded? It's a possibility that when they first started uh, looking at UFOs, uh, say primarily right after World War II, their initial inquiry may have centered around that question. Oops, are we being invaded? All of a sudden, UFOs are everywhere. Pilots are seeing them, radar is seeing them. Are we being invaded? Wouldn't that be awful? What could we do? They undoubtedly wouldn't tell us anything until they figured out what was going on. By 1952, the CIA was ready to tell President Eisenhower, who had just been elected, that they did not believe that UFOs posed a national security risk. But they did believe that public interest in UFOs could possibly be risky. And so they said, we should simply make sure that people think UFOs are silly that they don't look at UFOs anymore or consider them as a serious business. And so it became literally government policy, written policy, to debunk UFOs. Now, whatever was true about UFOs, whatever they collected then, whatever they've collected since, has happened behind a policy of debunking. Even if some president along the way, take. President Carter, for example, who made a campaign pledge that he would tell people about UFOs. He said, if I become president, I will tell you everything we've got on UFOs because I saw one once and he filed a report when he was governor. But when he became president, you might recall, he didn't say anything about UFOs. Why is that? We can only speculate because people have asked him ever since and he won't talk about it. Well, the theory is he got into the Oval Office and he called in his people and he said, well, I want to keep my campaign promise to tell everyone about UFOs. And they said, oh, Mr. President, we're sorry, you can't do that. And he said, what do you mean I'm the president? He said, well, yeah, but you're not in charge of everything. So there is a theory, which has never been completely substantiated, that presidents may be briefed as far as they need to know, but that they are not allowed, any more than anyone else is allowed, to talk about what they find out. And it is quite possible that they don't find out very much. If we could get Clinton on truth serum and shake him down and say, tell us everything you know about UFOs, would he know very much? Chances are, not very much. I can only speculate as most other UFO researchers would, that somewhere deep inside the bowels of government there is a repository of information that would be very, very important for us to know, to understand the whole story. 
It's very unclear who controls that information. It's very unclear what would cause that information to be broken out. It seems as if the secret has been kept a long time, that perhaps some of the ways it was kept would be considered by today's standards to be improper, illegal, outside the bounds of constitutional law. We have seen other examples of that recently. Some, some things that were justified by the tensions of the Cold War today in a new atmosphere look rather bad. So the question is, how many heads would roll? Who, who among the elder statesmen of our nation would be made to look terrible in the last years of their life? Is that worth, it, worth the cost? Will we wait till they're gone? There are many people who think that's what it's going to take. Those people have to die. Give them a good burial, give them their due, then tell the story. What else? Many people who have security oaths, military people particularly, are currently getting together for the first time ever, getting together and talking about their experiences. There have been a few meetings in Washington, D.C. and other places where these people have started to talk. There is a movement afoot to get these people connected with congressional hearings. One of those meetings recently was attended by the astronaut Edgar Mitchell. And Edgar Mitchell then went and talked to a news reporter, and the story turned up in the straight press. And Edgar Mitchell said that when he walked into that room, first of all, he looked around, he saw, he saw military brass everywhere, and his jaw dropped. He thought, holy smokes, look at the people in this room. And then he sat there and listened to their stories, and he walked out of there with his head spinning. This is what he told the news reporter. This made it into the newspaper. He said, he said I myself have never seen a UFO. But I was in a room full of people who had, you know, all kinds of medals and all kinds of military stars, and these people had seen UFOs. And he said, I cannot deny the stories that these people told. I think that they were telling the truth. That means there are UFOs. So that was a very impressive thing to him. Now, the, the objective is to get those people in front of Congress. What will it take? Because those people all have security oaths. Well, a person with a security oath can talk to another person with a security oath. That's okay. But they can't go and talk to you and me. And to a large extent, they can't talk to Congress either. So the question is, what would it take? Would it take a presidential pardon, a presidential amnesty from the security oaths? That's one possibility. It might work. So there's a movement afoot to get that to happen. So, we're looking for a path through a kind of waiting period, a period when there's more and more agreement that there's got to be something to tell, something worth hearing. And there are people who could tell it, who want to tell it, but there's a stopper. There's all this politics in between. And there's a bunch of history, a bunch of historical baggage, a bunch of lies told, a bunch of old policies that have caused tension in the situation, serious tension. Can we get through this? It's a matter of time. There is, there is pressure. I think, there, I think openings are occurring. Now, all that assumes that there won't be some grand event, but there might be, because there are amazing UFO events occurring all the time. And so 
The other scenario, or one of the other scenarios, is that while all this political wrangling is going on over here, the aliens, whoever they are, are thinking, oh, these humans, they'll never ever get around to this unless we simply land on the White House lawn. So there's the White House lawn scenario. Could that happen? Yes. Do I think it will? Who knows? Now, that, that doesn't mean I think it's going to be like the day the Earth stood still, the saucer comes down and lands on the White House lawn. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that extraordinary UFO occurrences are being reported around the world. More and more of them caught on videotape. Could one of these provoke something? Yes, it could. It's not clear that there are more events than before. What is clear is that more of them are being recorded on videotape, and more of them are being reported and discussed in the news and on the internet. Today, for the first time, with millions and millions of people on the internet, information is moving more freely and more democratically on an international level than it ever has before in the history of the world. This is very important. Today we have a clearer picture of international events day to day than we have ever had before because the internet has broken down a lot of the barriers to information flow. So what we can be sure of is we have more UFO reports. That does not mean we have more UFOs. It would take a very, very expensive study to figure out if we have more UFOs. UFOs come in a very large variety of shapes, sizes, and behaviors. First of all, let's just eliminate everything that isn't, an, isn't a legitimate mystery. If, if, it's, if we can attribute it as an, a misidentified aircraft or, the, or swamp gas or the planet Venus, we just set it aside. So in the group of legitimately mysterious objects or phenomena, that we assume are some kind of technology. First of all, we have a variety of luminous objects, objects which are primarily visible because of their luminosity. We can't see wings, we can't see jets or propellers or anything else. All we see is an extraordinary amount of light, light doing strange things. We don't know what else is there. That's, that's thing number one. Then we have a variety of structured craft. The classic flying saucer, uh, you know, two pie plates, sort of back to back, uh, comes in many sizes. Uh, we have had reports of objects like that only a few feet across, objects like that hundreds of feet across, and everything in between. Typically, they look metallic. Uh, but not always. Uh, sometimes they're seen on the ground, usually in the air. Lately, the most commonly reported UFO besides the classic saucer type would be triangular. And we're seeing a tremendous number of triangle reports lately. Why is that? That's a very interesting wrinkle. We had huge numbers of triangle reports 
over Belgium in 1989-1990. That was the first time we had a huge number of triangles, not only reported by many, many citizens, but also captured on film and also seen on military radars. There had been triangle reports before that, for example, in upstate New York in the mid-1980s. Uh, J. Allen Hynek, the great uh, American astronomer who became a UFO researcher, his last book called Night Siege, which was published, I think, in 1986, posthumously, that was about the New York sightings, about these large triangles. Triangles have been sighted in many places, but lately, very often, we have triangles often reported over Great Britain right now, uh, 1997. We have a lot of triangles being reported in various other places. We've had triangles reported over California recently, and so forth. So what's that about? We don't know. There are people who think that the triangle reports may be some kind of extremely advanced human aircraft. We're not sure. Now, besides those, we have a variety of other kinds of UFOs. We have cigar-shaped. Those have been reported since the earliest days. Cigar-shaped things with, with no wings, no visible means of propulsion. Classic cigar-type uh, UFO was involved in a sighting over Mansfield, Ohio in 1973, where four Army reservists in a Bell heli uh, uh, helicopter uh, were literally stopped in midair by a UFO that came out of nowhere. It started as a red light. It resolved itself into a huge cigar-shaped object right filled their entire windscreen. They were captivated. They were stopped in midair. Everything went offline. Their controls stopped working, their, their radios, their compasses, everything. Uh, that's a very, very import important case where the cigar shape was the, you know, the reported shape. There have been many others of those. And sometimes those are absolutely huge. In fact, sometimes when people uh, talk about motherships, they're talking about something that they say is this giant cigar. And they say that other smaller ones come out of it. Uh, you've got square UFOs. You've got uh, UFOs of, of other weird shapes. We've had a lot of diamond-shaped UFOs. And by that, I don't mean looking up and seeing a diamond shape. I mean, when you kind of looking, looking toward it as if it were a crystal. We've had, we've had reports like that uh, out of Brazil recently. Uh, and after that, you could have almost anything. You could have, we've had some famous Saturn-like UFOs. By that I mean like the planet Saturn, basically a round sphere with a ring around it. There are some, even some famous photographs of uh, UFOs like that. So you can see quite a variety. Um, I like to s compare it to the variety of motor vehicles here on this planet. If you looked at all the different kinds of uh, cars, trucks, motorcycles and other strange drivable objects on this planet, you'd see a huge amount of variety, big, small, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And UFOs seem to have that kind of variety. The reported aliens uh, come in a couple of classic types. And there have been a lot of alien reports, of course. The most commonly reported kind at this time would be a type that has become known as the gray. It's a very slender, dome-shaped head, huge black eyes, pointed chin, uh, very, very slender arms and legs, basically a humanoid, but with almost insect-like features. Those are reported over and over and over again. They come in a, quite a variety of sub-forms. Some very short, as short as two or three feet. Some very tall, over seven feet. 
Some are extremely insectoid, almost as if they have an exoskeleton, uh, very, lots of ribbing and strange appendages. Others are extremely smooth, uh, look, uh, the skin has been compared to the skin of a dolphin, extremely smooth, shiny skin. Um, they come in various colors as well, uh, ranging from uh, almost uh, creamy white uh, through various shades of gray, blue, almost to black. Uh, but the very large black eyes would be the distinguishing feature. Many people who say they've been abducted say that that's the kind they've met. The second most common kind would be virtually indistinguishable from human beings. The, and, and this, of course, is very problematical for anyone with a scientific background. The idea that you could see an alien that would even look remotely like you or me is from a biological point of view, extremely improbable, and people hate that idea totally. Nonetheless, human-looking beings are the second most often reported kind. One very famous abduction case involving Travis Walton uh, in 1975, Arizona, he reported seeing both kinds. The gray type, when he first awoke, where he, th he essentially thought he was on a spacecraft, saw the gray type first, and then went, ran, escaped in a sense, and ran down a hallway, and then met human-looking types. And in fact, he thought he was being rescued. He said one of them was wearing what looked to him like a space helmet. So he thought that these people had somehow stormed into the UFO and were going to get him out. And then later on, he found out that they were aliens too. So the, that, that kind is reported quite often. After that, you've got various other kinds. The next most often reported kind would be so-called reptilians. They come in various shapes and sizes, but the distinguishing features would be a reptile-like appearance, scaly skin, sometimes greenish color, brownish color sometimes, very pronounced facial features, lots of teeth, claws, etc. Uh, after that, you've got hairy creatures, you've got uh, various kinds of dwarf-like creatures, a, a whole menagerie of strange-looking little trolls and weird characters. And you've also got uh, beings of light. Some people think that those are actually angels or spiritual beings of some kind. Others think, no, that's just another way that aliens can show up as, uh, you might say, a humanoid light form. Uh, so, all that variety is out there. In March of 1997, we had uh, a very tragic occurrence uh, that um, many people refer to as, as Heaven's Gate, this mass suicide in, near San Diego, California. And uh, from the standpoint of UFO research, it was unfortunate not just because 39 people died, but because uh, it gave UFOs a, a very bad name, at least for a short period of time. These people believed that um, the comet Hale-Bopp uh, was a symbol that it was time for them to translate to a higher level of reality and that this was going to happen by going on board a UFO. So their leader, Marshall Applewhite, had been saying things like this for more than 20 years. And 
one of the things that I found uh, it was very important to say, and I was on radio and television a lot during that period talking about this, as well as on, on the internet, was to make a very clear distinction between a religious belief on one hand and UFO research on the other. Because Marshall Applewhite and his people, the Heaven's Gate people, were religious zealots. They had a very powerful religious belief or spiritual belief about leaving this planet and, get, and going to the level above human. That's what they said, the level above human. It happened that they believed that they would meet up with other translated beings, higher beings, on board a UFO. And so UFO research was sort of clumped together with this apocalyptic group. But really they had nothing to do with UFO research per se. Over the years there have been many, many predictions that UFOs would land and take all the good people off the planet. Those predictions are alive and well today. As we approach the millennium, people think that's what the Bible meant by the rapture. Of course, not everyone thinks that, but some people think that the Bible was talking about UFOs coming down and taking us all away. Marshall Applewhite and his people thought they'd get a jump start on that. Well, as far as I'm concerned, everyone is entitled to their beliefs. I hope that most people's beliefs do not lead toward suicide. That's a terrible path to take, in my opinion. It has nothing to do with what we think is true about UFOs. Nothing at all. Uh, and uh, I'm happy to say that legitimate UFO research uh, was not uh, seriously hurt uh, by these events. I think the events were tragic. I think they were avoidable. But I also think they were predictable. Because Marshall Applewhite has been saying this stuff, and he said it very clearly on the internet. We've been saying it for 22 years. Uh, so, will we see such things again? We might. This is a concern. The millennium is a strange time. Lots of people expect very weird things to happen. Sometimes these become self-fulfilling prophecies. The UFO subject attracts a wide variety of people, some of whom are religious fanatics. Uh, we can't force them to stay away. Some people see this very religiously. Again, I just hope that people will always be able to make a clear distinction between religion on one hand, which has its role to play, and research and science on the other hand. I prefer to keep UFOs in the science side of the equation. If a person wants to include UFOs in their religion, that's their business. I just hope that it doesn't turn uh, dark and painful the way it did for those people. I'm not aware of any credible researcher who can say with any certainty at all whether aliens are here to help, hurt, or some other purpose. First of all, if we accept that aliens are here at all, which of course is a stretch, we have to accept on the basis of reports that there's more than one kind. If there's more than one kind, there may very well be more than one agenda. 
So we're perhaps dealing with some nice ones and some not nice ones, as in any neighborhood. Many people experience so-called abduction. Typically they say it's really not fun at all. But most abductees do not say that the aliens were bad. They say the experience was bad. They say the aliens may be careless or not understand human feelings or human fear or the human threshold of pain or whatever. But most abductees, when, when pressed, will not say the aliens are bad. In fact, very few people, with the exception of uh, what I would call conspiracy theorists, very few people have reported experiences or drawn conclusions that the aliens are bad. The aliens are extremely bizarre, unpredictable, um, frightening, but they may not be bad. On the other hand, people do have experiences where they really do feel that the encounter is extremely positive and that the beings are loving, uh, benevolent, uh, are here to help, to uh, instruct us, to assist us, and so forth. So you do hear sometimes very strong uh, statements that the, that the aliens are positive. So on balance, I would have to say that the main take on the aliens is we don't understand them very well and they may not understand us very well either but the experiences tend to be roughly neutral to somewhat positive. One of the big speculations among UFO researchers is that some kind of interplanetary civilization already exists out there. Some people refer to it as the Galactic Federation. Well, that may be kind of science fiction. But if there are a variety of different kinds of intelligent beings who can come here in some kind of technology, then it stands to reason that those beings may have met one another, may have treaties, may have cooperative agreements, may have some kind of government out there. It's, it's a possibility. The question is, where do human beings fit into all that? And even if all that is pure science fiction and turns out to, never, to not be true at all in the long run, what about us? We are on the verge of becoming an interplanetary civilization. I am convinced of that. The only thing, I think, that could prevent that would be if we have the very bad judgment to blow ourselves up. If we have a nuclear war or do some other terribly catastrophic thing and ruin our civilization, well then that would prevent all this. But short of that, if we manage to move forward peacefully, we will move into space. We will begin by learning faster, safer, cheaper ways 
of flying around our solar system. Right now, flying anywhere in our solar system is hard, dangerous, and expensive. But we're going to get better at it. Uh, we will return to the moon within the next 10 to 20 years. We will undoubtedly, we will eventually go to Mars uh, again if we don't blow ourselves up. We will little by little turn those extremely risky adventures into economically feasible enterprises. That is, the, that is the direction that we will take it. It will be the next phase of what humans sometimes term manifest destiny. We will go from a species that is bound to one planet to a species that can extend its reach to nearby unpopulated territory, as humans have always done. It will look a little bit like, it'll be the 21st century version of you know, the global conquest of the New World. Um, uh, back, you know, when the Spaniards and the Portuguese and the Italians were all going around. So, that could happen. The question is, can we go outside our solar system? The answer is, someday, yes. As a matter of fact, theoretically, we already could. It would be a very unpleasant trip to go from our solar system anywhere else we'd want to go. It would be long, uh, boring, uh, incredibly dangerous or risky. Let's say the chances of failure would be very high. But that's using technology we have now. Could we do better than that? Certainly we can. Um, will we achieve faster than light travel? Interestingly, up until recently, Almost every physicist would say, nonsense can't be done, it's against the law, you know, Einstein says no, etc., etc. Today that's changing. Today there are serious research projects underway based on the premise there is a way to go faster than light. And right, uh, for example, um, uh, several different NASA installations have little pilot projects looking at exotic propulsion systems. And the people in those projects believe it is theoretically possible to go faster than light. They're looking for a way to do it. So if we were to achieve that, then going from here to another star is simply a long trip. It's no longer unthinkable. It's no longer impossible. You know, it, it's no longer terribly uncomfortable and so forth. We could do that. So, if we currently believe we could do that, it seems to me highly irrational to believe at the same time that a hypothetically more advanced civilization out there hasn't already done it. And as our own physicists come around to the idea that there's a way to do this that doesn't break any natural laws. Why should we rule out the possibility that some other intelligent species out there somewhere has done it already? After all, astronomers today are virtually unanimous in believing that other intelligence is out there. That has, in the last five years, that has become far and away the politically correct opinion. 
among astronomers and space scientists. Yes, there is other intelligence out there. They really think so. Well, I happen to agree. Now we have physicists telling us, yeah, and going faster than light might be possible too. And I think that if those two things are true, all the barriers to an interplanetary civilization are gone. 